Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Eleanor Gummer, the founder of One Eye Music Publications. Eleanor Gummer holds a Master of Music degree in piano performance from McGill University, a Bachelor of Music degree from the University of Manitoba, as well as a Fellowship and Licentiate Diplomas from Trinity College of Music, and an Associate Diploma in Piano Performance from the Royal Conservatory of Music. Ms. Gummer has been the recipient of numerous awards and has performed across Canada and in Italy. Eleanor Gummer has been teaching private and group piano classes, as well as school music for over 35 years. A trained early childhood music educator, Ms. Gummer has worked worked with children from the age of three, as well as students at the college level. Former national course supervisor with Yamaha, she is familiar with ORF, Kodai, and various music programs for children. Ms. Gummer is active as a workshop clinician, adjudicator with the Canadian Adjudicators Association, and is a former senior examiner for the Royal Conservatory of Music, and currently examines for Conservatory Canada. Eleanor Gummer is the founder and director of One Eye Publications flagship practical teaching school, Whitby School of Music in Whitby, Ontario, and continues to develop a curriculum for the methods in one eye publications series as well as many wonderful collections of music by women which we are going to talk about shortly. Eleanor how are you? I'm doing really well thank you for having me Olivia. Oh, I'm so glad we got to do this. So before we get into talking about your publications and company, I was wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and what led you down the path of becoming a musician. I grew up in southern Manitoba, and you basically had two choices. You either played hockey or you played the piano. Guess what I chose? So when I was seven years old, I started to play by ear, and that set off alarm bells for my mother. So she called the local piano teacher and got me involved in piano lessons. Um, So I took piano lessons like lots of other kids. Sometimes I liked it, sometimes I didn't. But by the time I reached grade eight level piano, I started to enjoy the music. It started to speak to me a little more. Then in ninth grade in school, I discovered that you could go to university to study music, something I didn't realize was a possibility. I played some two piano works with a boy in grade 12, and he was going on in music. So that kind of got me thinking about my future. Um, After completing my bachelor's degree, I was done with university and thought, I'm going to teach. So I rather quickly acquired a studio of about 40 students and also did some accompanying. I even had a church gig briefly. Um, But then in 1987, my husband was badly injured in a traffic accident. So we decided that I needed to further my education to in order to increase my income. So I went to McGill for a master's degree. I could afford one year. So it was pretty intense trying to get everything done in the one year. And I was coming back on the weekends to look after my husband and our four-year-old daughter. So after completing the degree, I worked briefly as a supply teacher and then accepted a position with Yamaha Canada as a national course supervisor for their group piano method. So I learned a lot from this position. It had really had me traveling across the country teaching teachers how to teach group classes. The hours were excessive. So after a performance review where they significantly increased my workload with a minor increase in pay, my husband and I decided to open our own music school. So that was in 1994, and we've been at it ever since. So it's been really great because it's given me the opportunity to be creative and constantly expand my knowledge. Well, that's wonderful. I didn't know that about you, that you took, you went and did your master's later. I I had just assumed that you did back to back and you did it in a year, which is incredible. It was, it was crazy. I basically (laughs) chosen uh, in advance and 
had, you know, the notes and the rhythm learned so that I could get right on into the studying. I also studied with Carl Ulrich Schnabel in New York at the same time. So that was uh, really an interesting experience having two teachers. And the deal with my prophet McGill was if I could convince him to do what Schnabel asked me to, I could do it. I mean, I was older. I wasn't coming straight out of my bachelor's. So there was a certain amount of maturity and experience that came with that. But it really made me think through things sort of, you know, here are two opposing ideas, which way do I want to go? Mm-hmm. And I've got to prove myself. Yeah. So, so it was an intense year. A good night's sleep was, a regular night's sleep was five hours. A really good night's sleep was seven. Wow. But I want to do it again? No. no. <laughs> Sometimes it's good. We don't know what we're getting ourselves into. <laughs> Certainly. So then after you had opened the, the Whitby School of Music, you founded One Eye Publications. I'm curious, how did th- that get started? How did you set out to start a publishing company? And did it start as just something you were doing yourself with your own pieces? And then it sort of grew into something larger? Tell us more about that. Absolutely. Like most of my life, it evolved. So we had the music school and we when we initially opened, we had a lot of group classes, which was kind of a novel idea for this area. There, there were very few, very few group classes being offered. And when I used Me and My Piano by Fanny Waterman as sort of our core curriculum, along with some Alfred publications. So then I started writing some supplementary material and I'd ask the kids for ideas about songs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so they come up with ideas. I know one week a little boy said, I want a song about a garbage truck. Okay. So I had to think, what does a garbage truck sound like? So that's still one of my favorite pieces. Eventually we had more supplementary material than we had actual core material. Mm-hmm. So book one was born. And uh, of course we needed, we thought, of, we thought about publishing this and we needed a name for the company. So I'm sitting in my home office and I'm looking down at my one-eyed cat. Spartacus. We bounced a few ideas around and finally settled on one-eyed publications. So Spartacus was the first one-eyed cat. The day after he passed away, my daughter went to the Humane Society and there was another Spartacus. Same breed, same color, same missing eye. So that was Maximus. Max just passed away a couple of weeks ago. So uh, right now there isn't a one-eyed cat, but down the road. So anyway, after book one was implemented, the teacher started to ask for book two, and it just kind of evolved from there. So I never set out with the intention of publishing a method that was never Mm -hmm. sort of, okay, I'm going to write a method book that just, it just happened. So it just kind of evolved. And then as, as times change and Kids became younger when they started lessons, I I came up with the primer book for, you know, ages four and five. And then eventually it morphed into a violin kids course and also a guitar kids course. So we started off with only books for young children, but now we also have a method for teens and adults in Piano Kids, the Piano Kids journey. And then of course, now on into women composers. Yeah, which is what I want to, I want to get into discussion about next. So I came to know you through our mutual colleague, Cecile de Crozier, who is very invested in the promotion of music by women. And she pointed me to your collections and she was like, have you talked to Eleanor Gummer before? I was like, I mean, I knew of your curriculum. I knew of the Piano Kids curriculum. And she's like, well, she's working on these anthologies and you need to discuss with her. And this was at the same time that I was writing my book loud and clear. And so she pointed me to your collections on keyboard music and they're fantastic. I have 
all of them here. I use them all the time. My students love them. So can you tell us more about how you came upon doing these collections, these anthologies? And I mean, really in the last couple of years, your collection of women composers has grown astronomically. Can you tell us more about that? Right. You know, life is strange. I've ended up doing things I never in a million years thought I would do. So the pandemic was actually a blessing in many ways. I was exhibiting at the MTNA, the Music Teachers National Association virtual conference. That was in 2020, I guess, and attended a session on women composers. So I thought, oh, there's probably enough here to do a book. I mean, you know, how many women composers are there? So, you know, I started looking into it and little did I realize how much there is. But very shortly after that conference, Conservatory Canada had an online town hall, and I almost didn't log on. I was tired, and I really didn't feel like doing a meeting. And then I thought, well, I'm an, an examiner for them, so I should attend. So that's where I met Cecile. So Derek announced that Conservatory Canada was expanding their syllabus to include works by women, and Cecile was actively involved. So I'm like, hey, hey, guess what? Um, yeah, I'm looking <laughs> to publish a book. So we finally did meet in person this summer, which was really great at the Armta conference in Kingston. So uh, it's it's a lot of fun you know, working with her and, and we find a lot of music together. I think the most intriguing part of this is the stories these women have. Often they were very popular in their day. Uh, Pauline Virdot, for example, was a close friend of the Schumanns, played duets with Chopin. She was a very popular singer in her time, as well as a pianist. Pauline and her husband had weekly concerts in their home salon, and they launched the careers of composers, including Jules Massenet, Charles Gounod, Camille Sasson and Gabrielle Foray. And yet, unless you're a singer, you really probably haven't heard of Pauline Virdo. Hedwig Chrétien is another composer I'd never heard of, and yet she studied with César Franck. She was the first woman to be awarded first prize of the Society of Composers in France. She taught at the Paris Conservatoire for a few years. She was a prolific composer with more than 150 works, including piano pieces, songs, ballets, orchestral and chamber works, and two one-act operas. So I'm particularly fond of her preludes and sonatines. A lot of these women were teachers, so their music is really well-suited to children. It's very appealing. There's another one. I never liked her music. And just a note for the listeners here, Eleanor is talking about Clara Schumann. We had a bit of an issue with the audio, and so that cut out part of our conversation. And so in this spot here, she's talking about Clara Schumann. The only exposure I had to her works were some of the pieces in the RCM books, and I just found them uninspired. Uh, then I came across her impromptu, and everything changed. What an incredibly beautiful piece of music. And then I got thinking, this is a woman that's dealing with a husband with mental health issues. She's raising seven children. She's running a household, giving concerts to earn money, and is able to write this incredible music. You think of it, you know, we complain about how busy we are today. We have washers, dryers, dishwashers, microwaves, takeout, ready, prepared, and we complain. And I was really, truly humbled when I started thinking about what this woman went through and what so many of these women went through. So it's um, it's exciting to discover not only their works, but also their lives. Yeah. So how do you then decide? Is it pure interest like in deciding to grow the publications and what you'll work on next? Is it digging through archives? Sort of yeah. where where is that path leading you? 
I usually start with IMSLP Petrucci. I mean, that has a lot of music on it. And then from there, it's just clicking. And sometimes you just keep clicking and it's like being a detective, really, or you find a work by by a woman and you think, oh, that's really nice. I wonder if she wrote anything else. And you, like I say, you just start clicking. Sometimes I don't know how I end up in some of these libraries. You kind of just get there. The uh, Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris has a tremendous amount of music. Harvard University, University of Indiana. Uh, last November, I went to U of Michigan in Ann Arbor with my U of Mich wish list. <laughs> so I did some research ahead of time, knowing what they had in their collections. And it was like being in a candy store. It was fabulous finding these works. And uh, so, you know, I was busy uh, copying a lot of them. It was also interesting to speak to the librarian as to how they came about their collection. So a lot of times grandma died. Grandma was a pianist or piano teacher and had boxes of books, and they just get dropped off right. how they acquired this collection. But I believe they have the largest collection of works by women in North America. So I was there for days digging through stuff, and it's all in boxes in a cage. So you have to ask for specific works. Yeah, I do want to I want to go back and uh, see see more of what they have. There's, there's so much music. Mm-hmm. Those archives are really there. They're just like these treasure troves of pieces to discover. Actually, in a couple of weeks, we're having on a music librarian to talk about how they grow the collections and different diverse collections and the ways that librarians are making a difference in this sort of work because they really are. Oh yeah. I was never a library rat. I mean, I was a performance major. So being in the library was, oh, you know, I never wanted any part of it. So like I say, life is strange. Uh, Here I am loving being in a library. So never say never. This is true. (laughs) Has it been difficult to find some of the music and then edit it into modern notations? I would imagine that if you're looking at first editions and manuscripts, that there are lots of errors because, of course, they weren't edited through. 100%. You have to remember also these are works by women. So a lot of times the publishers didn't take them very seriously. The other thing in the publishing industry, why a lot of these works only exist in first editions, is when you take your scores to a publisher, a lot of times they read require you to sign away your rights. Mm -hmm. So they own the copyright. So it's up to a publisher also then to promote the work. So if they don't promote the work, it doesn't sell. It's delisted. So the work is is gone. A lot of times, two publishers take liberties and edit. And the case of, I did uh, the duet uh, by Verdot, the um, De Field Bohemian, and first edition compared to the manuscript was like, wow, the uh, editor really took liberties, changing notes, omitting bars. So I went back to the manuscript and tried to stay true to her intentions. Right. The other thing is publishers in the 1700s, and into the 1800s, sold works by subscription. So you would subscribe, you know, agree to purchase, for instance, works by Handel, every new piece that came out by Handel, you would agree to purchase. So there was also status in being on these subscriber lists. So if you saw a member of the royal family or a cleric, somebody of importance on that subscriber list, you would want to be on that subscriber list in order to be associated with it. 
So needless to say, the women did not have a lot of subscribers. So not a lot of subscribers, not a lot of sales, and the works are gone. So sometimes the manuscripts also can be sloppy. Composers are in a rush to write down their their notes. So in those cases, when sections repeat and all of a sudden there's an odd note and you're thinking, okay, wait a minute, did they mean for that to be a C or was that supposed to be a D? So sometimes employ common sense. You're looking at it going, okay, it's not a D. It's got to be a C because it doesn't work in terms of the harmony. The other problem is the archaic means of writing. So when you're dealing with older manuscripts, for instance, the whole note would be placed in the middle of the bar, not coinciding with beat one. Mm-hmm. Accidentals also had different rules. So say in the treble clef, uh, the F in the first space is marked sharp. Today, it's only the F in the first space that's sharp. Okay, it, the F in the bass clef is not sharp. However, in earlier manuscripts, it applied to all the Fs in that bar. Of course, yeah. And then also different clefs. The soprano clef was used. Yeah. So having to transpose some of that and they change clefs during the course of the work. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to be on the ball and figure out like, hmm, (laughs) what note is this? (laughs) And of course, you can't get in touch with the original publishers because most of them are gone. The companies are no longer in existence. The publishing industry has changed tremendously in the last 50 to even 100 years. When I look through my own scores from the 1900s, there are a lot of publishers and a lot of independent publishers, and they're all gone. So it's really a shame. The large companies have taken over the small companies and he listed a lot of their works. Actually, just this last week, I had a student who wanted to learn the five preludes by Milan Kimlinka, Canadian composer, but I can't find a printed copy. The publisher that published it in 1987 is no longer in business. So yeah, works, you know, works disappear. And unless you can get a first edition in a library, or sometimes it's the only edition, it's virtually impossible to get them. That's so interesting. And that's, it's disappointing, because, you know, they've signed away their rights. So then even their estate or their descendants don't have the rights to their music, and it, it gets lost. I'm curious, um, because you were talking you've that you've gone to a lot of these library archives, and you've been searching online. Have you found any music that was like in journals, like archived journals. Yes, yes. The women's magazines in the U.S. used to publish pieces on a regular basis. Each each uh, issue had a composition in it. Also in France, it was very popular to do that kind of thing. And you have to remember, a lot of this was women, a lot of the women's works were considered salon pieces. Right. So meant for the stage. They were only suitable for performing at home. Uh, Chaminade, Cecile Chaminade is a prime example. Her works were just sort of written off as inconsequential and salon pieces. And in fact, there was a critic in the New York Times that stated, a woman will never be able to compose like a man. Which is sort of bizarre. Exactly. Exactly. That's so interesting. So then the salon works were then discounted as as real works. But often the salon was one of the only places that a lot of women could perform. Right. Absolutely. And women would get together, you know, to have these these little performances. And you're right, like women were not really respected on the stage. Actually, interesting fact, something I wondered about was the use of octaves. I come across a lot of these women's works and they have so many octaves in them. And I think my hand is small. And I think, wow, 
Like I would have difficulty performing this. I did some research. The pianos were smaller. These were yes. so it was only when we had the male virtuosos starting with Liszt that were bigger that the pianos became bigger. So to the size of the modern accepted piano today, and there's a there's a push to have the pianos made smaller. But the manufacturers, of course, it's money to also manufacture smaller instruments. So we're stuck with the modern piano as it is. And I think like really there's a market there because uh, houses are smaller, condos are smaller. Would it not make sense to have a smaller piano? And it would reduce injuries. Sure, certainly. That's so interesting. I didn't even think of that. I mean, of course, I think of the harpsichord. We know that the the width is is smaller. And so then that's where a lot of those octaves and things like that are easier. But the, the piano forte was smaller. That's so interesting. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. So it kind of solved the mystery as yeah. to why write all these octaves. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because you had touched on it a little bit earlier, but some of these women, they were famous in their times. They were publishing, they were performing. And then their music went out of print. We didn't hear about them. I think of like Maria von Paradis, you know, who was so well known, like you said, Pauline Verdot. Have you found any sort of answers to that as to why they almost just disappeared from our history textbooks and things like that when they're public, like they had careers, they were published, they were well known, they were very well respected. I think it's it's still a man's world. I mean, even in the publishing industry, it's still a man's world. When I do the conferences, the, the big ones in the US, uh, we've been exhibiting for years, and there are still males from some of the publishing companies that won't acknowledge me. They'll just walk right by. And it still is a man's world. In fact, a lot of times I thought I should have written Piano Kids under a pseudonym, under a male name. And think about it, the piano publications that are out there, the piano methods, how many are by men? How many are solely by women? So if a woman is there, it's like, uh, James and Jane Bastian, but it's not Jane Bastian. So it is still a man's world. I'm a long way, we still have a long way to go. Yes, certainly. We do. Yeah. So, well, over the past several years, you've put out a lot of publications like the anthologies, sets of works like classical sonatas and books of etudes. I'm currently, as my New Year's resolution, working through the Louise Ferranc book of etudes. How do you decide what to research next and what to publish next and what other works you're going to publish? It's really just constantly exploring. I guess primarily I'm looking for works that have teaching value. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, that's what I'm looking for. I'm always looking for new music for my own students. I'm particularly interested in works that would appeal to students, to young people that have a color, something that's unique that has unique harmonies. The Ferranc etudes are fantastic. Like, you know, love them. I use them with my students all the time. They're a nice diversion from Hannon and Cherney. They're more yeah. musical. And yet, you know, they have the same technical challenges, but there's there's musicality embedded in it. Sometimes I come across surprises. When I was putting together the Sonata album, I have a particular fondness for sonatas. I, I love the, the genre. So as I was putting together the volumes, the three volumes, I kind of set aside a number of the sonatas to publish in their own separate volume so that I could publish them in their entirety. Anyway, I came across a sonata by Cecilia Burney. So Cecilia's grandfather was the musicologist Charles Burney. Her parents were both musicians. Her aunt, Frances Burney, was a novelist who was known for her novel, Cecilia. In fact, Cecilia Burney was probably named after the character in the novel in 1782. Mm -hmm. So I came 
contact with the Bernie Center at McGill University. And they they didn't realize that Cecilia Bernie was a composer. So they asked me to write an article on the sonata that was published in the Bernie newsletter. Uh, the only other work I've come across by her is a work for piano and voice at St. Andrews University in Scotland. So I paid to have that digitized. But the sonata is an opus two. So where's opus one? Mm. So I'm hoping, you know, to be able to go to, to Europe, to England, and, you know, perhaps see if there's something hidden away in a library, some more works by her. So it's always an ongoing process, you know, finding finding material. About Frank, by the way, did you know that her Etudes Opus 26 were mandatory for students at the Paris Conservatoire to study? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, you know, here we are with this woman that I'd never heard of before, and yet she was very respected as a, as a teacher at the Conservatoire. So the other thing I look at is, has the work already been published? Has somebody... Right publish this work because there's no point in duplicating. So that's kind of part of, you know, what steers me in different directions. But I have a stack, huge stack of music I've printed out, plus more saved on my computer that uh, once I'm finished what I'm working on right now, I'll be going back to and playing through and okay, where do we go next? Yeah, that's awesome. I think that you'll have, you know, a never ending supply of music to keep you going um, a couple weeks ago on the podcast, we had uh, Jenny Boster, who started the Female Composer Club, and every month does a large PDF of a different female composer every month, some of their music um, that's public domain. She does a coloring sheet, information, all of this stuff. So it's it's a really amazing resource. And one of her colleagues had asked her, well, like, well, don't you think that you'll run out in a year? And she's like, oh, no, 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 this can go on. <laughs> the world is a very big place. And there were a lot of women that were musicians. <laughs> um, I'm curious because it, it made me think of this when you had mentioned that maybe you should have published Piano Kids under a pseudonym. Are you finding music by women who publish under a pseudonym? Many, 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 many. In fact, I don't know if I want to say the majority, but like a large percentage yeah. published under pseudonyms. And that's another part that's sometimes interesting is they had so many names. Like, what? So when you're searching for music, you know, you're often searching under different names, yeah. depending on how it was published and how it's cataloged in that particular library. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're constantly chasing, you know, chasing leads in, in various directions. Yeah, that was something that was so surprising to me when I was working on Loud and Clear. And when I was doing my master's thesis was I was finding music and I almost I did look up and research every name that I came across when I was going through these collections, because I learned pretty early on when I look up a composer and oh, it was actually this was a woman even though it was a male name or it's even uh, the composer Crosby Adams like what she did is she just took her last name and his last name and that was her composing yeah. you know her husband's last name was her composer name yeah exactly the same thing uh, a number of years ago I was looking for a work for a student preparing for his ARCT exam and I'd accompanied the Chaminade flute concertino yes full piece okay but by Chaminade, okay, whatever. So I was looking under Chaminade and I found a Takata. And so I tried to get a printed copy of it and couldn't find one. And she was a, a woman. Can you believe it? A woman wrote this. And I was, wow, uh, this was before the pandemic and I got started in this. And I'm like, oh my God, Chaminade was a woman. That was kind of, you know, my first exposure to the fact that there were women composers. The only ones I knew about were Fanny Mendelssohn, Clara Schumann. Yeah. It, pretty much about it because that's, all you know that you really ever saw mainstream 
So that was my first major eye opener. And that was just before the pandemic. So I should have known that was kind of just a taste of what was going to come. And now you are completely immersed and surrounded in the music. by 100%. So why is it important that right now we're promoting the historical music of women? I mean, I think that performing contemporary music by composers writing right now, female composers writing right now is pretty expected. But why this big push for the historical music of women? I think we're going through some big changes in society. Um, Black Lives Matter, the Indigenous rights, the Me Too movement. There's a huge shift going on and society becoming more aware that it's not just white men that rule, that are capable of running companies, capable of running countries, that there is a broader world out there and there's a push for more recognition. I think women were ignored and forgotten for so many years that we were led to believe that only white men could write music. When we think about the great so-called great composers, they're all white men. So women, I think, also can be their own worst enemies. I had a woman teacher say to me, well, just because they're women, or just because the works are by women doesn't mean they're good. I was told that too. I said, you know, correct. But just because they're written by men doesn't mean they're good either. Well, you play through the Haydn sonatas. Some are better than others. I mean, I love I love Haydn's music. Don't get me wrong. But not all the sonatas are what I would call great. Beethoven bagatelles. Some are good. Some are eh, so-so. So the, the great, so-called great composers, not all their works were outstanding works. They also wrote the ho-hum works. Yep. So not all works by women are great, but there are plenty. There are a lot of really great works. Yes. So I, I'm... I was really happy to see how Conservatory Canada mm-hmm. is in the women and and people of color into their syllabus. I was disappointed in the RCM, the latest syllabus, and I I talked to them about it. I said, you know, that you don't have a lot of women. They do have a lot of women in the modern women living today, which which is great. But when you look at the Baroque, classical, and romantic, there are not a lot of women listed. You know, when you look at the Baroque, it's Bach, Handel, Scarlatti, uh, the classical Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Dibelli, Clementi, Kulau. But there are women that also wrote during those times and that wrote some really terrific music. So I was I was disappointed that they didn't include more there. But as teachers, it's also up to us to open the eyes of our students. Yeah. You know, there are diff- there are other composers out there. And I think sometimes for some of them, it can give them for some of the women, it can give them a sense that, OK, I can do this. I can sort of think outside the box and pursue what I want to pursue in life that just because I'm a woman, it's not going to hold me back. Yeah. So I think that's important. And I think for the the male students, it's also important for them to see that it's not just men that wrote music. There has to be, you know, we have to teach equality. Yeah, certainly. I think that the change happens at the most basic level of a teacher, teacher to student. Absolutely. Because then my students will never grow up thinking that women didn't write music. They won't think that it's abnormal to list Florence Price with all of the quote unquote great uh because she was right she was yeah a great music and it's nice um in the car i listen to sirius xm the, the classical station mm-hmm. playing more works by women mm-hmm. and every once in a while you know i'll think oh that's really nice and then they come on and say who it was i'm like oh it was a woman yeah 
<laughs> well, this has been a real treat to, to get to talk about these collections. I'm curious, what are you working on right now? What new publications can we look forward to coming out of One Eye? A very exciting one right now. It's a set of pieces by Leocadi Kasparov. She studied with Anton Rubinstein and she was Stravinsky's teacher. Oh, fabulous. Beautiful, beautiful harmonies. I was playing some of them for my daughter yesterday and she's like, those are beautiful. I'm like, yeah. So that's coming out very soon. I'm working on the final edits of it now. And then I want to, I've got some works by Hedwig Kretchen also. I really do love her music. Yes, me too. The two books, you know, for you at a, at a lower level, lower grade level, but these are more at the intermediate, early advanced. Mm-hmm. So imaginative pieces by her. So there'll be a collection by her. I eventually also want to publish some of the piano works by Pauline Virdo. Yes. You know, as, as she was a fabulous pianist, I mean, to play duets with Chopin. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have some credibility. Yeah. So I want to publish some of her piano works as well. And from there on, who knows? It's um, it's fun. It's just a lot of fun exploring all of this. That sounds wonderful. Well, it's been a real pleasure getting to chat with you. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. I'm asking everyone in this season of the podcast the same five questions. And so there are no wrong answers. Just go with your gut. Could you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician? Probably ninth grade at school, when I realized that you could actually go to university for music. Cool. Favorite piece or song to perform currently? <laughs> I know. That's my favorite color. Depends on the day. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have any favorite. I I, I love Bach. I love uh, Mozart. I love Debussy. I love a lot of the, the works that I'm currently working on. So no, sorry, no favorites. <laughs> Have you ever been given bad career advice? And what was it? I don't think so. I even asked my husband about this and he says, you know, we kind of just do our own thing. Yeah. So I can't say I've actually had, I've made mistakes, but not because of somebody's advice. Yeah. What's some good music or career advice you can pass on to other musicians? For students, be the best you can be and learn the most you can possibly learn about music. Uh, I did my undergrad at U of Manitoba. So I was a performance major. As a performance major, we had to do three years of theory. Third year was combined species counterpoint, 20th century harmony and orchestration combined into one course. We had compulsory four years of history. We had to do all the instrumental techniques courses. I I was a piano performance major, okay? We had upper and lower strings, brass woodwinds. We had to take conducting. We had to do keyboard harmony. It was grueling. It was a brutal degree. And boy, we complained, you know, how we're never going to use this stuff ever. Why do we have to do this? At U of T, they get to practice all the time. They don't have to do all these courses. And, you know, I've used everything I ever learned. Absolutely everything. So I'm very grateful for the education I received there. So I've had students, you know, that want to go into performance. They don't want to do theory. Wrong answer. You need to, you need to know theory. You can't perform without a deeper knowledge of the work. So learn learn as much as you can keep your ears open regarding publishing i've had people very generous with advice giving me ideas uh so keep your ears open and learn learn the most you can and be the best you can be i think that's great advice what are you listening to right now you might be surprised sound of silence our stereo broke years ago we don't have a radio in the house i the only time i listen is in the car i'm listening so intently all day with teaching i really don't listen to much you know that that seems to be a common 
thread in terms of all of the interviewees that I've had on this season. It's either they're listening to something totally like they're not listening to classical music at all because they want a a bit of a break because their life is surrounded. And, but because you're listening to music all day as a teacher, you're performing, you're practicing that. um, Yeah. It's a lot of I'm listening to nothing or I'm listening to something totally unrelated to my career. True. I mean, what do I like? Um, I like the seventies disco music. It's just fun. And I like the, they use real instruments too, you know, in the, in the earlier stuff. So the brass from the Motown, you know, I love that sound of, of the real live musicians. So yeah, if I'm going to listen to anything, that's probably something that's high energy. That's just fun. I love it. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Loud and Clear. Do you mind letting our audience know where they can find you and learn more about your works? Sure. Uh, OneEyePublications.com. So one O-N-E-I-E-Y-E publications.com. Also on Facebook, Instagram. Amazing. With the same, yes. the same title, One Eye. Yeah. Well, just remember, it's a one-eyed cat. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have links to uh, everything that we've referenced in the show notes. Thanks again for coming on and talking with me, Eleanor. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And that is a wrap on our episode with Eleanor Gummer, founder of Piano Kids and One Eye Publications. I am so grateful for the work that Eleanor is doing. I'm so grateful that we were able to connect. And if you have not checked out her publications at One Eye Music, you absolutely need to check those out because they're fantastic resources. I really wanted to highlight Eleanor's work during Women's History Month because she is doing so much to bring to light some of the historical music that has been lost and um, her work in archives and republishing some of that lost music is really wonderful and so I really wanted to highlight her work so thank you to Eleanor for coming on thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows and if you don't live in the Saskatoon area you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website I'm your host Olivia Adams this is loud and clear and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.